Money FM 89.3, best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. 10:06, I'm Michelle Martin. This is the show where we look at what investors are talking about, what matters to investors. DBS growth plans for China and India. Thoughts on the Xinjiang cotton retail boycott happening in China and a look also at the fall of Archegos Capital. How did so much happen around the unwinding of margin calls? All that answered today by Arun Pai, who joins us in the discussion. He's Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Good morning, Arun. Good morning, Michelle. Good to have you with us as always. All right, let's double down on DBS. I, I know you're looking at financials. It interests you, that area in Singapore. Now, DBS growth plans for China and India, they say they're doubling down and they want to grow their focus on digital assets. There was mention of a tokenization where DBS seeing opportunities in. So what do you think of DBS looking to widen its presence uh, in China and India, all part of its efforts to explore a uh, greater presence in, in the wider region? Oh, absolutely. Like DBS has been one of my top hold, like financial holdings and holdings across the board in my portfolio for a number of years right now. And, you know, the whole rationale for getting into DBS is because I believe after, you know, reading their annual report, being a consumer and a customer of theirs, they seem to have that secret sauce, right? Like innovation, putting customers first. It's there in their culture. We can see even across like the three local banks in Singapore, DBS, at least according to me, seems to be the one that is always trying to like digitize the whole customer journey, make it as streamlined as possible. Uh, in my humble opinion, they have the most sleek UX UI of an app. It enables me to do pretty much everything I want at on through my fingertips, right? And so from that perspective, Love what they're doing. Culture is great. All is good. The big question mark has always been, though, where will the next step of growth come from, right? As a mm-hmm. Singapore headquartered bank, as well as Singapore is doing, the, the size of the economy is only so big. Now, obviously, the location of Singapore and the ability of companies here to set up its headquarters and then expand into the neighboring region is what is one of the big uh, benefit of of having you know a headquarters based over here. The problem, though, is being in the financial industry. There is a heavy amount of regulation when you look to expand. And I think it was a number of years back where DBS was trying to acquire a very large stake in Danamon because of this, uh, you know, the fact the net interest margin, right, which basically means the difference between the amount of money you have to pay to your uh, depositors mm-hmm. vis-a-vis the amount of money that you can lend out to corporates in the back end of the curve. Singapore being a m- more mature market, the NIM on net interest margin was a lot smaller, but Indonesia was a lot larger. So they thought of, you know, let's take a large acquisition stake in Danamon to potentially acquire the entire thing. Temasek was an investor in both companies, so it seemed like it was going to be a done deal. Along came the Indonesian government saying, no, this is not going to happen. This is one of our jewels in our financial ecosystem. We're not going to sell this away to uh, a bank, be it even like a friendly partner to another country. 
So there was always this question of growth. And that's why I loved, uh, you know, listening to Piyush, the CEO of DBS, this time around, mm. where he was highlighting the channels of growth for DBS in the future. China, you know, three main factors. Uh, the securities, JV, consumer finance that they already own in China, 100% off, and the greater Bay Area. Fantastic, right? Like, you, you know fully well that China is obviously the second largest economy, going to become the largest economy anywhere between like five to 20 years. Having this huge footprint there is going to be great for the growth of the business and hence underlying the stock. Checkbox over there. India, you know, their acquisition of LVB or Lakshmi Vilas Bank. Question marks about whether it was a forced marriage or not and all of that stuff. But, you know, it seemed to be acquired at a very, very attractive price. And if they can manage the NPLs within that entity, of which they've taken a conservative outlook for it, things could be quite impressive. And obviously, there's a huge footprint of that bank with consumers as well as SMEs. And last but not least, the digital asset aspect of it. Mm. Bit of a question mark. Uh, I think as a role of a financial institution, if you're playing the the market maker or the middle person in this transaction of buying and selling of stuff, by all means, right? Like take advantage of the fact that there's so much of a hype around this asset class. And if you can monetize sitting, being the broker, sitting in the middle of the buyers and the sellers, absolutely. And they seem to have done that already with this whole digital exchange. They want to go down that path a lot more. And they have a really strong tech arm to support that. Mm. So why not? Mm, deep capabilities in so many different areas. Now, speaking of um, investing in China and going into China, you know, it really made headlines these past couple of days. And I wonder what your thoughts are on the Xinjiang cotton retail boycott. So for the listener, you know, brands like Nike, H&M, Burberry, pretty much vanished off China's online maps, not even available on apps in China. Uh, JD.com took some of these brands off its platform as well, all because of the stand of these companies against forced labor in Xinjiang in the cotton trade. So H&M's comments about not sourcing cotton from Xinjiang um, were made last year. So these are old comments. Nike, Gap, Zara, Uniqlo, Adidas, they all said that they would cut ties with Xinjiang cotton. Old statements made sometime last year. But what did happen this year in March, we saw coordinated sanctions from the US, the EU, against China uh, and in a matter of days China's foreign ministry responded saying the allegations were smear campaigns malicious and they pretty much stoked uh, retail boycotts of these brands. Nike shoes have been burnt. Celebrities have cut ties with some of these brands in China. It's a real social storm uh, in China for international brands who have made the effort to drop Xinjiang from the supply chain. So Arun, what happened and where do you think these brands go from here? You know, Michelle, it's so scary, right? Like that yeah. one part of your, uh, your statement where these were comments that were made last year on some social media feed of these companies mm-hmm. and seemed to be quite quiet for a while. And now suddenly the entire thing is erupted. H&M that you mentioned, this is a company that has been in China for 30 years. Wow. 10% of their stores are located in China. Over 5% of their global revenues comes from that specific country. And literally overnight, 
all channels and all avenues for people to buy H&M, even if they wanted to, disappeared, right? Like, it, it, it's such a, the times that we are living in, or because of a tweet or something that was put up four, five, six months ago, is now coming to bite them. And that's extremely scary for a company that obviously has to be present in social media. You have to be woke in this generation, at least for, from the aspect of serving your European and American customers. Mm. But then you get caught, get caught massively in these crossfires where, and geopolitical tension itself, right? And this brings about a bigger question as to why has the company been founded and who are they trying to appease? Like in, in whose best interest are they working for? Is it this whole aspect of, you know, I'm setting up a company purely and I have a fiduciary responsibility only to my shareholder? Or is it more as the founder of the company, I have a certain vision wherein, you know, I want to in- implement a lot more of like ESG standards, uh, ensuring like, you know, all the all the more woke stuff. And I think that's something that a lot of companies are going to struggle with as time goes by, as we have a lot more social media transparency of how do they want to try and play that, you know, fine line. I mean, let's look at Google. This is not just, uh, I mean, uh, right now, obviously, it's the Xinjiang cotton issue, Mm -hmm. but there have been a number of issues, right? Look at Google looking to set up into China. Their slogan was do no evil or see no evil or something. Right. And then they looked to go into China and suddenly the Chinese government was like, sure, we love it, but you have to set up your servers over here, keep the data over here, and you have to not enable anyone within China to Google the Tiananmen massacre. And Google was about to sign off on that until a bunch of its employees said, wait a minute, I thought the whole purpose of setting up this company was full transparency of data and letting people decide what they want to see and what they don't want to see. And it's a huge market, but then what do, what do the founders do? Do they decide to go for shareholder return? Because it is going to be a very profitable business given the size of the economy in China. Hmm. Or do they have to side with their own employees and like the greater good of the world, quote unquote, hmm. and not? It's, it's a very, very difficult question to answer. Extremely right. So many different, uh, you know, great points there. Arun, I want to double down on your thoughts on do you think this is going to scare foreign investors in a sense that you have to play by China rules or you get cancelled? You have no choice. Absolutely. I mean, it's centrally controlled. There is no other way around it. I I think the, the best approach for companies is going to always be full transparency, right? Where there will be some companies who will say, look, I, we founded this company for these, these, these specific reasons. These are my missions. These are my values. I will have to sacrifice, you know, this sh- potentially short term or sadly longer term in the case of China, this avenue of growth, because uh, this is the reason for us being founded. There, there is just no other choice because the last thing you want is for a company like H&M or Nike or all of these like Western headquartered businesses to continue doing work in or continue having operations in a potentially geopolitical sensitive area and then getting clamped down by your main regulator, Absolutely. which is based in the US and Europe. Right? That can shut your company down. Mm. You have no choice. So you have to pick the lesser of the two evils.
So do you see U.S. companies basically staying neutral on China or, you know, essentially having to choose which customers they leave aside? So are you expecting more companies to choose geopolitical sides? I feel if it's a founder-led, I'm not saying this is the right answer or the wrong answer. Mm. I'm just saying what I envision the next couple of years to be. Mm. I think if it is a founder-led company Mm -hmm. still, I think uh, he or she will have a lot more say in how they want to go about doing business. And they will not uh, necessarily take into account the pure aspect of shareholder returns. It will be more of a transparent, look, this is who I am. This is right. what who I believe in. Right. And this is what it's going to be. I'm happy to sacrifice 10% of my revenues in China yes. because this is just not going to work. The yeah. flip side, though, is I feel these larger companies who might not, larger, smaller, whatever it might be, who are not founder-led, and there's a board of directors and everything, they will start taking a lot more of a quiet approach. So there'll be no aspect of even getting into these issues at all. I'm going to stay far away from this. If the U.S. and China or Europe and China or whoever else it might be want to duke it out, by all means, if they ask me for any comments, it'll be a very standard, you know, no comment kind of a reply. Mm, So here we see China essentially attacking other countries' human rights policies by pressuring companies. Uh, Do you think these boycotts have the potential to hurt Chinese businesses in any way? Uh, I don't think nowhere nearly as much as the hurt is going to provide externally. And the reason I say that is because for the last, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, when this crazy Chinese growth was happening, Mm. they had already like pretty much closed its borders, right? Which enabled a lot of extremely strong Chinese companies, be it in the tech space, be it in the consumer goods space, to get set up. So gone are the days where China was like, you know, a manufacturing of counterfeit factory floor. It's become the manufacturing bowl of the world, right? Sure, it might not be at that high level of tech, especially in the semiconductor space, uh, you know, as compared to, say, TSMC or uh, other, uh, some Taiwan, Samsung, like other Taiwanese players. Mm-hmm. But in pretty much all other sectors, be it shipbuilding, be it uh, various consumer good uh, platforms that they've created, e-commerce players, they have managed to cultivate that level of entrepreneurship and setting up really strong fundamental like fundamentally strong businesses within its borders so if they decide you know what h&m i'm going to cancel you and that's the end of it there are a whole host of chinese names that will be able to take their place so i don't think from the aspect of uh you know chinese like local chinese brands whether they'll suffer that much when it comes to stuff like you know clothes or anything anything other than extremely high-tech uh, semiconductor businesses, I don't think it's going to be that big enough, uh, of an effect to local Chinese players. In fact, kicking out some of these people might actually lead to a higher revenue because there's all this nationalistic pride is now kicking in right. where, you know, even when the semiconductor thing happened and uh, Huawei was banned, the next two, three quarters were all-time record high revenues for the company, right? Because mm. locals were like, I'm going to stay, I'm going to go like made in China brands. That's all I'm going to buy. Good points there. 
Great points. Now, I want to turn to, we rarely talk about family offices in the news, but I did speak with an investor recently who said, you know, Michelle, with volatility increasing, I expect to see more scandals in the financial markets. And here we have Bill Huang, former hedge fund manager at the heart of Archegos Capital. Now, there are a... a um, family office and their trades pretty much blew up after they were hit with margin calls that saw a plunge in Viacom CBS shares, chaotic trading as banks around the world tried to limit their losses. Nomura, which is Japan's largest investment bank, said its losses could hit $2 billion. Credit Suisse, uh, apparently according to sources, could lose up to $4 billion. Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group announced it could book a $270 million loss. Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, UBS Yes, they've all indicated that they too will be hit with losses, albeit uh, smaller losses um, than Japan's Nomura and Credit Suisse. So the big question, Arun, can you help us understand how this happened? Can you explain for us how margin calls could lead to such a devastating ripple effect? Sure. I mean, there are a little bit more questions related to how exactly that took place, but let's go into a simple example of how traditionally, be it single-family offices or larger hedge funds, work with investment banks. So say I'm a $10 billion asset uh, family officer of fund, right, which, is, which was uh, the amount of money in this specific case. Say you have tie-ups with 10 different banks. So I take a billion dollars, I provide that, give that to the likes of Nomura, Credit Suisse, UBS, Goldman Sachs, etc., their prime brokerage division. So I take the billion dollars, transfer it to them as collateral. The investment bank will give me a line of credit of up to $5 billion, typically 5X leverage, for me to go around buying or selling shares or any asset class that I want. So I take a billion dollars, give it to say Namura in this case, Namura gives me a line of credit. I can buy up to say $5 billion worth of Vicom shares. Now, in addition to that, uh, you can, you can you know, take into account like all these various derivatives. So the $1 billion is placed. I can take up to $5 billion worth of exposure in a certain underlying. And then after that, I can start doing either total return swaps. I can go selling put options, buying call options, or vice versa if my view of the market is that it's gonna, the share price is going to crash. Either way, but basically just think of it as I can sign up for all these various derivative trades mm-hmm. that can enable me to take an even larger exposure into certain single name stocks in this specific case. The couple of problems that happen right now. So now the, the problem is in this specific case, when the person went extremely long on Vicom, the founder of Vicom, Uh, basically thought that the share price had run up quite substantially. They thought this is the perfect opportunity to raise more capital, which means selling more shares to raise more capital. They went and sold a bunch of shares. That coincided with like the topishness of markets anyway, and the share price took a bit of a nosedive. Mm -hmm. Then what happened is this specific fund had the same position on with a whole bunch of different prime brokers and apparently, somehow, the, the, these banks provided, extended the lines of credit to this family office using the same collateral. 
And these are just headlines that I've read in Bloomberg, and I'm sure this is going to be made into a movie in like a couple of years, But <laughs> which is something very surprising because, you know, collateral is literally taken and should be provided to the bank for them to issue lines of credit. But anyway, it is what it is. This is what happened. And then on Thursday of last week, Somehow, these four banks, primarily uh, Goldman, Morgan Stanley, Nomura, and Credit Suisse, had a conference call, which also begs to wonder, how is there no issues of collusion over here? Because unless you have the blessing of the Fed or another regulator, you shouldn't be having these conference calls with your competitors, where they were trying to figure out, how do we get out of this position? And the reason for that basically is, uh, this specific family office, they was long, they put in $10 billion, say because of 7x leverage, they were long $70 billion worth of these underlying shares to these banks. The share price of this underlying bunch of companies went down to anywhere between 20 to 30%, which more than wipes out, so 20% of 70 billion is $14 billion, more than wipes out the initial $10 billion of equity that was provided by this family office. So all these investment banks got together and they were like, holy crap, this guy is gonna be going bankrupt, like basically is already bankrupt. I need to go out and clear my position. So then they went into the market and started like fire selling all these various assets that uh, this bill guy was long. The problem that happened is Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley got out of their positions right after that conference call on Thursday and Friday. Mm. Nomura and Credit Suisse got left holding the bag and they realized that they were not able to get out of these positions. Share price already tanked 40, 50% on Friday, went down a further amount on Monday, and Nomura and Credit Suisse had to bear the full brunt of the losses. So Nomura, as you mentioned, 2 billion, Credit Suisse, 4 billion, all because their prime brokerage division Mm. sat and gave a bunch of credit lines to this family office. Mm. The position went massively long, uh, massively wrong, sorry. And these investment banks had to basically stop out this hedge fund at fire sale prices and thereby had to incur the loss, sadly. So the investor at the center of the storm is uh, Bill Huang, former hedge fund manager. He's pleaded guilty to wire fraud Insider trading 2012, as recently as 2018, Goldman Sachs said, no, they refused to do business with him because he was considered to be too big of a risk. So what changed? It's just sadly greed, right? Like when you know that this is a huge whale in the market and when you provide these credit lines to the uh, a family office or to a fund, hmm. you know that you'll be the one sitting in trading like you, you know you'll be the market maker for his trade so the amount of like you make money from lending money to this person then you make a lot of money from him crossing like bid ask spreads that your capital markets uh, traders sit and create for this person so there's a lot of money to be made through the prime brokerage department not just from the lending aspect but also if the person's an active trader they'll go through your brokerage platform and because of that money that you can make from this aspect that Goldman Sachs decided, okay, you know what, it's worth the risk. But the, the point is you need to have very strong ironclad risk management tools mm. in the back end. And that's what this put to light where, you know, evidently Goldman and Morgan Stanley did. Sadly, Nomura and Credit Suisse, by the time they got approvals from maybe senior management or they figured out exactly what was happening, 
it was way too late. And that's the fundamental problem. So why was a person who was convicted of insider trading allowed to have such massive credit lines again? It's just the nature of investment banks, right? Like if they see an avenue to make truckloads of money, they will step up. They will be the first to step up while hopefully trying to have a very strong uh, risk department to mitigate any of this. Some investment banks succeeded. Some investment banks sadly failed. Pretty forgiving space, I see, this uh, financial world. Now, when it comes <laughs> to CFDs, I understand Archegos was thought to have used CFDs to obscure the accumulation of significant stakes in companies. Aren't CFDs banned in the States? Right. So it was it's through a total return swap or a TRS, wherein you're absolutely right. So, I mean, let's take a look at this, this specific example, right? The guy had $10 billion. He levered that up to $70 billion. $70 billion in these market cap of Vicom, Relix, GSX, and a couple of other companies, he could buy out all of those companies multiple times. But the reason why he did not need to do that is because he entered into these synthetic uh, arrangements with these investment banks. So it's kind of like a CFD where the instrument or the swap that you, or the derivative that you've signed up with the investment banks provides you uh, the return as if you're long that underlying asset, but you're actually not buying stock in that company. And that is how you can get extra leverage. And that's what investment banks provide to you, Mm. obviously at a certain fee. So that kind of like goes back to the last question also of why they bother doing this, because they knew that uh, Bill sits and does all these derivative transactions where they can take a bunch of extra uh, spread on the trade. Mm. And that is where, you know, even though CFDs are banned, that's not the issue at all. You can have multiple other derivative ways like PRSs in the specific cases, what he prim- what he apparently did. Mm-hmm. We-, we won't know the answer to this until, you know, the next couple of weeks or a couple of months where there will be House and Senate hearings. We will try and understand or bring to light exactly what kind of derivative this person undertook. Mm. But it wasn't as straightforward as just buying call options mm. on the underlying uh, equity, because that would have to have been revealed by the exchange. These were off-book derivative transactions or OTC or over-the-counter transactions that were done between the investment bank and the fund. Mm. And the question, of course, of you know what, wh- why big investors can execute outside normal trading hours at block trade may be looked into as well. I, I just want to ask this final question. We know Discovery, Viacom, Tencent, Vipshop Holdings, Baidu, uh, all seen some sort of knock-on effects. Do you see other stocks being impacted by uh, what's happened to Archegos? Excellent question. And sadly, it really depends on how leverage and intertwined are a number of other funds uh, with exposure to those underlyings that you mentioned. So, for example, when LTCM, uh, ironically, you know, with the full form is long-term capital management, when that sadly went bust uh, a number of years ago, it caused huge ripple effects across the entire economy uh, because of the leverage that banks had provided to this fund. Banks had to take a massive hit because banks took a massive hit, they potentially unloaded other risky positions on their own balance sheet. That led other funds to suffer losses, and it became a huge spiraling effect downward. And that's exactly the problem with leverage. When you have interest rates so low, it in a way is the Fed uh, you know, providing a green light to funds, banks, 
uh, you name it, like financial players to take upon massive leverage. Mm -hmm. My personal two cents is I don't think banks are taking upon that much of a leverage Mm -hmm. because there are still all these ironclad capital uh, ratio restrictions put in place post-2008. But definitely on the fund side, and we've seen a couple of other blow-ups in Singapore already, Mm. where a number of these people are already suffering. So if, for example, this continues, and, you know, we'll never know the extent to it and by when, right? Because if you go back to 2008, 2007, 2008, going way back, the two funds that were having mortgage securities in Bear Stearns, they went bust way earlier in March. And it took a good six or seven months before we felt the true brunt uh, of, you know, the mortgage collapse. Is that going to happen right now? I don't think so. But will this clean out a bunch of other funds that are overly leveraged and that had positions in these underlying assets? There is a very high likelihood of that. Something for us to track. Thank you so much for helping us uh, unwind the many strands and quite a debacle, Arun. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure as always. Thank you so much for having me, Michelle. He's Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download the SPH Radio app available on Google Play or the App Store.